please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I have the passage there for you in the bulletin and an outline as well. We are now at that very pointed and practical section of Ephesians that instructs Christians on how to live in light of their union with Christ. And this is an important thing to remember. If you were getting this letter and reading it through in one sitting, you would have been so built up and bolstered by the first three chapters about your position in Christ, you would not be tempted at all when you go into the section that directs us with morals and how we should live. You wouldn't be tempted to disconnect that from what you just read about your new identity in Christ. You would, you would be built up to realize, I am a new creature in Christ. We are a new community in Christ. So therefore, we have been given Jesus' righteousness and his spirit promises to give us aid to manifest our new identity. Um, but what happens often is, is we, if we take a sermon out and it tells us what to do, we sometimes will naturally disconnect it from what we just read about God's grace and we'll think it's something we've got to do. Uh, God did this for us in salvation. Now we've got to go do our part. That is the furthest thing from what Paul is communicating. That would be futile. That would be pointless. And we are helpless to do any of this apart from God's grace. So what he is telling us here is that you have put off the old because you're a new person in Christ. Now you are to go about actively putting on the new clothes that manifest who you really are now in Christ. Um, He describes them in terms of putting off and putting on, displacing one thing and replacing it with another. And you could do this because you are in Christ now. You could not do this if you weren't in Christ. He's talking to those who have rested in Christ, they're in union with Jesus, and now the outward actions we have manifest who we actually are inside. We are new creations in a new community called to be united, to be growing spiritually, And this is the reason for this exhortation from the Apostle. Hear now as I read. I will read Ephesians 4. I'll start at verse 21 for context to back up a little bit from where we've been. And I'll read down to verse 32. My plan is is to cover verses 25 through 28 this morning and then 29 through 32 next week. All about the new clothes we wear in Christ. Hear now God's word starting at verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love your word and its promises to us in Christ. We love the message of Ephesians as it has been building. We are rooted in union with Jesus Christ as individual believers and as a called out community of your church, the called out ones, a new community, your holy temple made of living stones. We rejoice in the security we have in Christ and his promises. And now, I ask you, Father, by your continued outpouring of grace to make us to show forth our Savior by our words and our deeds. And now that we have put off the old self, please give us aid in putting on the clothes of the new self that we might manifest Christ to the world. I pray this in his name. Amen. Last week, I used the picture of Lazarus. I tried to paint that picture for you. As you probably know the story from Scripture, when Jesus came to the tomb after Lazarus had been dead several days, he had been wrapped in grave clothes. Those were clothes or cloths that were fit for dead people, for corpses. That's what they were designed for. Um, And he was in the grave for several days, and then Jesus rose him from the dead. And when he came out of the tomb, Jesus' first words were, unbind him. Take the grave clothes off of him. They were stinking by then. They were not fit for a living person. They didn't show someone who's wearing those clothes is dead inside. So take them off. And of course, he didn't stand there without any clothes for very long, we would assume. Someone brought him clothes that were fitting a living person. Uh, Clothes that you would say point to someone who's alive. It seems so basic. But they're not grave clothes anymore. They're clothes for the living. Now, when we are born again, when God transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when he makes you alive together in Christ, he takes you and he raises you again. And you had an old way of life, in old clothes that were manifesting what that life looked like. And we are to cast those off because now our, who we are is now identified with Christ, not with the old Adam. The new Adam is who we are in, Jesus. So we need clothes that befit one who is alive in, Adam, or alive in Christ and not dead in Adam any longer. So we cast off the old clothes, and Paul uses this metaphor of putting on that which befits our new identity. I want to be crystal clear. Putting on actions and deeds do not make us identified with Christ. They show we are identified with Christ or are in union with Christ by God's work. This is important because we can slip into this idea, really a works mentality, that God saves us to a certain point, but now going forward, we need to do this, 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 and this to have any security. Not at all. It's based on the eternal security we have in union with Jesus, now before the Father as Christ is before the Father. From that place of security and stability, we can throw away that old clothes and pick up the new clothes. Displace one and replace it with another. I want you to think about clothes just for a little longer because it's a good metaphor. That's why Paul uses it. The clothes we wear generally will say something about who we are inside. If you go to a wedding, in most cases, you'll see bright colors oftentimes, especially with the bride. But generally, there's this brightness, there's this joy, there's this celebration, and that's what you get out of a vision of the people's clothing. But if you go to a funeral, you know that typically we wear darker clothes because we're in mourning. We don't want to distract from the fact that we're grieving. 
That, that generally goes hand in hand with what's happening. It describes what's happening inside, if you will. Think of another, another way, a doctor. Um, they'll study and go to school for 10 to 14 plus years. They'll be examined over and over again. They'll have to be certified and they're given a license. Once that happens, they'll wear a white coat. And the white coat indicates to you who they are inside, that they've gone through all of that. It's an outward indicator of an inward reality. It simply manifests something that's true. Now, if they take the white coat off, we have doctors in our church, they're not, they don't cease to be doctors if they're not wearing their white coat. The coat simply expresses who's inside. Think of a police officer. They go to school for a while. They go to academy. They get training. Eventually, they are given a badge, and they're given a uniform. Now, when they don't have their uniform and badge on, they may be off-duty, but they're still police officers. They're law enforcement officers. They've been licensed to be that or identified as such, certified as such. The uniform, though, points to who they actually are inside. This is the picture we have. There are old ways of life that showed who we were inside. And if you remember in our passage, when we are unbelievers, we have darkened minds. We're ignorant because our hearts are not alive in Christ. So they're prone to their appetites. And the works that follow unbelief are all sin and they lead to misery and they're difficult and troublesome. Those are the old clothes we wore, the grave clothes, like when Lazarus came out. But then when we're made alive, those clothes are to be cast off and then replaced with new ones. Now, we will find ourselves, even as believers, picking up some of that old clothes because they're comfortable, struggling from time. We have to have constant renewal and honesty about what are we doing right now? Is it reflective of the old clothes in the old Adam? Or is it reflective of who I actually am now in Christ? This is an ongoing process in the whole of our Christian life. I think it's important to note the way James Boyce captured this concept because I think it's important to repeat. Boyce said about these verses we just read, in particular 25 through 28, where we will focus. The apostle is not merely urging a new and higher standard of morality on people. That is an utterly futile thing. We cannot be genuinely better by mere moral persuasion. That is not at all it. Rather, Paul is demanding a high form of behavior precisely because something decisive has already taken place. We have already been made new in Christ. That is why we should act like it. That is why we should put on the new clothes that manifest our new union with Jesus. We are to live out our new identity in Christ by throwing off our old clothes and putting on our new clothes. Let's look at verse 25, and you'll see in verse 25 through 28, three different old pieces of clothing that have to be cast off. You have to recognize them from, for what they are, and then what you should replace them with, what we should replace them with by God's grace. First, off with lies and falsehood, dishonesty, and on with truth speaking. Off with that which comes very natural to us in unbelief, to, to be dishonest, and on with comes to us when we know the truth, God himself, to speak the truth. Verse 25 says, therefore, in light of this big buildup, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. Do you see that this relates to our ability to be in union with each other, 
to put on this new clothes, to function together, it's necessary for all of us to put on that new clothes or be striving to put on that new clothes because we're members with one another. These things affect each other. When we wear the old clothes and practice the old ways, we harm our unity, our membership together as the body of Christ. So therefore, having put away falsehood. Now this is in the past, this is in a, a, a tense that's indicating it's happened. You put away, having put away falsehood, having put it away, let each of you speak the truth. Now, in the original language, it's probably best translated, having put away the lie. It's okay to translate it this way because from one lie, the big lie, the rest flows out. And the big lie is the lie of unbelief that there are other gods besides God. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you believe something, you'll be okay. It could be in this God or that religion or this. That's the lie of idolatry. And that's the lie the Ephesians were always dealing with, with the backdrop of the temple to Diana and so forth. It's the, the same lie we struggle with all the time, at least being fed to us. It really doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe something, and we're all going to get there somehow. The lie. It's the lie of idolatry, that there are other gods besides the God of Scripture, Therefore, having put away unbelief, remember the context, unbelief, having put away falsehood, now we believe, now we know the truth. We put it away because now we're in Christ. Having put it away, let each one of you then speak the truth. What flows from our relationship with Christ, first and foremost, is we see things for what they really are. We have clarity about things. We don't believe lies any longer, and therefore, we won't speak them either. We'll lay things out through the lens of what God says, even if it hurts sometimes. Furthermore, we're not insecure about the truth because we're secure in Christ. So we can admit the truth about ourselves, about our sin, about our failings, our shortcomings. We can, in love, speak that to others because our security is no longer in what we think of one another. It's what Jesus thinks of us, what God thinks of us in Christ. We're secure now so we can speak the truth. Most of the lies we tell or the falsehoods we paint are to protect ourselves or pump ourselves up in the eyes of others. We don't want to be looked down upon. We feel insecure, so we lie. No more insecurity for those of you who are in Christ. All your sins are taken away. I mean, even when you sin, Christ represents you to the Father. He is your advocate. God will not drop you for that. You are in Christ. And because of that confidence, you can be truthful. And we can be truthful towards one another. So we put away falsehood, pretense, hypocrisy, insecurity about what you think about me if you knew the truth. We put that away. That's identified with Adam, shame. But we put on speaking the truth. Why? Because we're resting in Christ. That's the essence of what Paul is compelling the Ephesians and us to consider. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Recognize that lies and hypocrisy and pretense that we, we have hurt whatever relationship we do it in. You know it's true in your friendships, in your marriages, in our friend groups. If, you, if you're dishonest, it just breaches it. And sometimes it's subtle, like people won't say it out loud or confront it, but we just avoid those relationships. You can't have a real relationship if we're not truthful. There's no trust. You don't even know what you're related to if you're not being honest with one another. In lies that take root and start to spread, they break down the body. They break down you individually and they break us down collectively. Think of, because it's so vivid now, what a virus does. You've probably seen chart after chart and explanation after explanation. But once it gets in, it's small. It just makes a lot of damage and then it 
it multiplies itself and it gets worse and worse. This is uh, what a lie or dishonesty is like in the body of believers is it breaks it down like a virus. It runs a course and it brings division. And Paul here is encouraging unity, not division. It's interesting that Paul seems to be identifying words that were spoken by a prophet to Israel. And of course, Israel failed badly at this. Zechariah eight sixteen. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Part of truth-telling is recognizing when there's suffering and calling it for what it is and addressing it, or when there's injustice and noting it and calling what the truth is about it, what is fair, what is right, what is equitable. These are all things that relate to truth, and the people of God should put that on. We should be objective in that sense with God as the standard and not be concerned about the repercussions of speaking or promoting the truth. This is what we put on. And what we put off are those lies. John McKay said, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. This is so because a lie is a sable shaft from the kingdom of darkness. There's no place in the Christian ethic for the well-intentioned lie. The moral behavior which Christ inspires, the end never justifies the means. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. This is the connection we have with one another and the importance of speaking truth to one another. We are members with one another. Paul uses the body metaphor once again. You know, last January, um, I was experiencing this weird, it was like this twitching in my left bicep. And I, I'm right-handed, so for the most part, it didn't affect too many of my ta- tasks, but it started to. It, it would just, if you watched my arm, it would just shake. I'm sure maybe one of you has a diagnosis, I'm sure. Uh, essential oils or something probably would have helped it. I don't know for sure what could have happened, but I would have taken it at the time. And it's twitching, twitching. So I finally go to the doctor, a chiropractor who also does sports medicine, who I had seen before. He said, I have a couple ideas on what to do. And they sounded kind of crazy to me. And I, to be honest with you, I still think they sound crazy, like sticking needles in there and doing this and doing that. But it reached a point where this one small part of my body was affecting the rest of it. And most importantly, when I was going out to shoot my bow, I could not hold my bow straight because my bicep kept flexing. Now, never mind the things like hugging your children and the other things that are important with your left bicep. I could not hold my bow any longer, so I had to go see a doctor. So when I go and see him, he does all the stuff, and lo and behold, whatever he did starts to work, and it got right again. But it's a picture. If one part of your body um, is messed up, not working right, it absolutely impacts the rest. If we have in our body something broken because of a, a lack of honesty or truth speaking, it will eventually affect the whole of our function. Just like all of this is true regarding the using of our gifts in a positive way, it's also true when something negative comes into the body. We are, it says in verse 25, members one of another. You know, the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul writes to that church, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now we are in Christ, we're alive with him, we can reflect the image of God. It's true all human beings reflect some aspect of the image of God, but we have to be renewed in Christ to really practice that in a volitional way. And this is what we see as our ability now in Christ, to put off the insecurity of our lies of old and put on what is new and grasp that and realize that's what we need. That's what manifests God. God is truth. The devil is a liar, and uh, lying makes us more aligned with him, at least in our outward actions. 
Now, we have to recognize, and as I know you do, that lying and dishonesty is endemic in this culture. It's woven into everything. And we often think of how, you know, the media is the worst. They spin stuff. And spinning is really, in a sense, lying, right? It's dishonest. It's swaying something towards what I want you to think about it or about me. And it's easy to see those big examples of it. Or bald-faced lies. We can call those out. But here's the challenge that I took upon myself when I started reading this. And I think you could relate with this, I think, at some level. We tend to, when we relate with others, because of our insecurity, uh, because I care about what you think about me, I tend to speak in a way, it's not an outright lie you can catch me in, but I know, I know how to spin it enough to look good to you. Why? Because I care about what you think. I care about what you think more than the truth sometimes. That's the problem. That's, but see, I know this, so that's what tells me that I'm identified in Christ. I recognize this. He's saying, put that off. Pick up what's true, and be secure in who you are in Christ. You don't have to unduly pump yourself up. Just last night, I was thinking about this, and it struck me funny. I have a cousin in, uh, through marriage in Michigan who just bought a Plymouth Valiant like the one I have, only it's a little younger. It's got a six-cylinder engine in it. Mine's got an eight-cylinder. We started talking about interacting. He is brilliant on cars. I am nothing but a YouTube hero. I just look at YouTube, and I, and I try stuff out. He went to school for engineering. He actually worked in Chrysler's development division for 10 years, developing parts for brakes and things like this. He is a technical, he knows what he's talking about. I like talking to him because I I learn a lot from him. But last night I was over at Sherry's brother's house and I was telling him how I've been talking with Greg about the Valiants and what we're going to do. And he goes, that's cool. Greg knows a lot about stuff. You must really be smart too, he said to me. And I had a moment to say, not really, because that had been the truth. But you know what? I liked the way that felt when he said I was pretty smart like Greg. And so instead, I didn't stop him. I said, well, I wouldn't say that, Brett, but you know, I know a few. Th- like immediately, I, ca- I-, I want him to think I'm smarter. Now, you can mock me for it, but I'm going to promise that all of us can relate at some level with the way we interact with people. Uh, we, just, we want them to think, why? Because we're insecure in ourselves and we care what other people think. Stop. You are a new person in Christ. You are united to Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe and your savior. That's who God sees you in. Who cares what human beings think about whether you know a lot about a 318 compared to a 360? It doesn't matter. This is what truth can look like. Just be secure in who we are in Christ. Speak the way it is. You don't have to pump yourself up for other people. You have all you need in Christ. There's more clothes to put on besides truth. The clothes that we need to put on, and I want you to think really carefully about this one with me. These are all difficult. They could be sermons on their own if we unpack them completely. But put on righteous indignation. Put off anger and rage, a bad temper, outbursts. Put on righteous indignation. There are things we should be angry about. Consider what those are and then do so in a measured way the way God would evidence for the way Jesus models for us. Recognizing none of us are Jesus exactly. So we have to be very, very leery when we say we have righteous indignation. Because oftentimes it's not really that righteous. So we have to be slow down and listen to what is being said here by Paul. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. In other words, there's a lot of people who are angry and sinning. He was recognizing that in the body of believers. Anger is a difficulty for us. Be angry and do not sin, he says. So you're not saying don't be angry. There are causes that are worthy of anger. But not every cause is. 
So be angry and do not sin. If you're sinning because of some anger you have, there's a problem and you're no longer manifesting the new clothes that you should be wearing. You're looking like the old clothes again. What is anger that causes you to sin? Well, it's hinted at here. See how the verse unfolds. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, if you're angry and sinning, um, you're constantly in that state. You're always in the state of anger. The sun's never going down on it. You're just constantly heightened. You're nursing your anger. You're feeding your anger. You're becoming bitter. You're, you're vexed over something consistently. It's starting to make you bitter. It's starting to control your thoughts during the day. You can't get it out of your mind. It's molding how you relate with people. That is an anger that's sinful and will cause you to be devoured along with those you will devour when you're in that state. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. In other words, if we don't do this, if we're not careful among believers to handle, to see our anger rationed and pointed in the right direction, which we'll consider in a moment, if we're not careful to do this, it will become rage. It'll become fury. It'll become something that divides and hurts. You know, this portion of Ephesians 4 is probably a direct reference to Psalm 4. Listen to Psalm 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Here's a a, a general truth that you'll see in other places in Scripture, especially in James in a moment. If If we immediately react with an outburst or a temper, it's almost always a sinful anger, almost always. Very few cases, unless you saw some terrible righteous injustice and you But most of the time, the quicker you respond, the more sinful that anger probably is. Rather than taking a moment to, as James says, be slow to anger, the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. There are two kinds of anger. Let's consider them, as I've been already alluding to them a bit. Two kinds of anger described in Scripture. There's the sinful anger, and there's a righteous one. We're to put off sinful anger, and put on righteous anger. Now, the verse doesn't give an exhaustive description, but we can certainly see enough here in this verse to help us. Put it this way, our old clothes anger never rests. It builds up and makes us bitter. Our old clothes anger consumes us and even works to mold our lives. The old clothes anger is about self-vindication, Back to that point, I need you to think better of me or you not to hurt me or or not to get in the way of what's due to me. It's about me and I've been hurt or about someone I love who makes me feel better and you're hurting them. Whatever the case, it could still be a very sinful anger. Our old clothes anger is defensive and usually out of control. Our old clothes anger never really actually satisfied. It turns from one thing to another. You ever meet people who you rectify one thing and they go on to the next thing. They always want to fight. They're always angry about something. The text says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Our old clothes anger gives the devil all sorts of a footholds to get in to do more damage. Maybe you've heard it said, and this maybe will serve as an encouragement for us to think about anger in its actual role in our life. Frederick Buchner said famously, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to favor the last, to savor the last toothsome morsel of both the pain that you have been given and the pain that you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback 
is that what you are wolfing down is yourself, and the skeleton at the feast is you. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And now in Christ, as difficult as it is, because of who you are in Christ, you can put on righteous indignation. Turn the sense of rage about what's happened to you to how is it an affront to the holiness of God. That's what should get us angry. And that could mean somebody being hurt. I'm not saying we shouldn't be angry if someone's hurt or you've been hurt. You're creating the image of God, and it's, it's an injustice, and it should give us a righteous indignation. But it's controlled. It's through a perspective. It's rationed because it's with the mindset of how this harms the glory of God in some fashion. It's, it's a slower process of understanding, but it's a necessary slowdown. In James, know this, my brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We might call our old clothes anger, or we might call it rage or fury. Our new clothes would be a righteous indignation. And we have to consistently distinguish between the divine judicial wrath that is deserved in some case and the human selfish fury. Proper anger is a sign of spiritual health. There is no such thing as no anger because there's sin and there's injustice and there's harm and there's hurt and there's misery. And those things do provoke a righteous indignation because they are a front to God's design for things. Righteous indignation is a holy anger against sin. This kind of anger or indignation often or it always has to, be, has to do with being offended by what also offends God. And this is a rare experience for us to have righteous indignation. We have to be honest about it. I just be honest about it. There's times where we say we get really mad about certain things, but we're very inconsistent in our overall approach. Like I'll hear people, I'll I'll hear people rage about sex trafficking and they're mad about it, but they'll watch pornography. Give me a break. Hold your righteous indignation when you're contributing to the very thing you say you're mad at and go down the list. Always pause and be careful about what you're angry about because most of the time you can't trust it to be righteous. And the reason why I could say this to you without you worrying about being laden with guilt is because what I'm telling you is because you're in Christ, you can hear these things as difficult as they are and with his help, you could see victory in those and that's what putting on this clothes that reflects who you really are, that's what it is. If I was saying this to people who are not born again, it would be nothing but a burden to you and you blow it off. The apostle talks to us in this sense. I think the best, obviously, this is obvious enough, but the best focus for us when it comes to what is righteous indignation is to look at Jesus himself and what angered him. He's our model. Here's an example. In Mark chapter 3, he enters the synagogue, it says. A man was there with a withered hand. Now, take this in. The man has a withered hand. He's living in the first century. There's no work-at-home stuff, uh, not online. Everything depends on your hands being able to do something. So this man is unable to work. He's in the synagogue trying to get healing, trying to get help. Maybe he's trying to get money because he can't earn it. His hand doesn't work. He's suffering. His family's suffering. It's difficult. There's so many things wrapped up in this man's withered hand. And Jesus comes in to this place of worship with this man who has a withered hand. And they watch Jesus. Who? The religious leaders. They're watching Jesus. Now, they're watching Jesus to see if he could finally come and do the thing that they couldn't do, heal this man, and we could all be overjoyed with the man's restoration and give God the praise. No, listen to the story as it unfolds. 
he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they don't care about this man's suffering. They have manufactured rules around the law that aren't even God's rules. And now he's holding Jesus to them. And they're more worried Jesus might violate their rules than relieve this man's suffering. They care about what that would make them look like. Because they're the upholders of the law and the rules. And all the people see them as the authorities. If Jesus comes in and does this and gets away with it, that's going to take away from us. And we're the ones that should tell. And you could just see this unfolding. And Jesus comes in. And Jesus responds, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, to the people, because he knew what he was about to do, to the rulers, I should say, the religious rulers, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He teaches them that they've been wrong by the way they look at the Sabbath anyways. You know, shame on you for the way you're thinking. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. Do you see what angers Christ? Hardness of heart when there's revelation present. In this case, he himself. When there's self-righteousness that judges what should be done or not be done. When there's in his power to relieve this man's suffering. That's what angers Christ. They were silent. He looked around at them. With anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. That's what angers Christ. And that's what should anger us, hardness of heart, a disregard for God, a disregard for his revelation, a disregard for the grace he's shown us. It's so much of the things we see around us that are rebellion are because of that hardness of heart. And we should grieve them. But doing a close self-inventory, because you know what? What could have happened here? Some of the Pharisees, if it was God's will, could have said, wow, and repented. Instead, they joined the council to go find out how to destroy this guy who's taken away from our authority. God's grace was in their midst, and all they could see was a violation of their own understanding of the law. Throw off your old clothes, lies, put on truth. Throw off your old clothes, anger and indignation, and put on righteous indignation. And finally, in verse 28, we see something else. Throwing off the old clothes of lying and cheating and stealing and putting on the new clothes of hard work and generosity. Verse 8, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, remember in the first century that laden into the culture itself were all kinds of roads and avenues to, be, to cheat and to steal. It was kind of the regular way that people functioned. Think of the office or the role of tax collecting the Romans appointed. Um, they had a certain dollar amount they needed from different regions, and if you could extort more money over that, that's what you took as pay. And it was nebulous sometimes how much. And you could bring dishonest means to get money out of people, and you could steal money from people that way. Other people in their businesses, because so much was by weights and measurements, would just have fake weights and measurements to get more from you or give you less. So there's dishonesty in how they did business. It was kind of laden in. If you've been to some places in the world and you go to their markets and stuff, you'll, you'll catch 
a game being played. And it's kind of like a sport of how to get as much out of people as you can to charge more than something's worth, maybe even give you something that's not very good at all. And there's laden in with it. It's kind of understood, a little bit of dishonesty. You know, just this, it's not cheating necessarily. It's just, it's the way who's, who's more savvy, who's more slick and able to. And it's woven into the culture a bit here. And of course, that promotes other things like laziness or laziness promotes that. Like, I don't want to do all the work necessary to get this. If I steal it, I can get it easier. So there's lots of theft that would happen. Open huge markets. It wouldn't be hard to walk by and steal a piece of bread or whatever it might be. So laden into the culture is this. But in Christ, we, can, we no longer, it would be disconnected from truth that was spoken of already. You no longer live this way. You no longer take what is not yours. You no longer steal from other people or be a bad steward of the things you've been given. Stealing or cheat people out of this or that. No longer. And these all weave together. You can see how they do. Let the thief no longer steal. And when you put that away, when you stop stealing, here's the thing. You got to put something on. Displace and replace. But rather, labor. Work hard. Go work hard. And when you work hard, you'll get stuff from that, from the work of your hands. And then when you have it, you won't just need it for yourself. You'll be able to give it to people who need it too. It takes your focus off of yourself and puts it on to others. It actually puts it on to God because God's the one who's given you the ability to do whatever you do in work. And all the production you have is because of the gifting he's given you. And then it makes you to consider other people will have legitimate reasons for why they can't have enough or don't have enough. And we can help them. That will always be true. And it will help them not to be in a situation where they might feel compelled to cheat or steal or whatever. And we encourage the whole body with this kind of looking out for one another in this hard work that we put for, out for one another to manifest what God has given us as the gifts we have to do the work you do, whatever vocation it may be. Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Put off old school clothes of laziness, cheating, and stealing. Put on new clothes, hard, honest work. Put off old clothes, idleness and sponging off of others. John Stott said very bluntly, instead of sponging on the community as thieves do, he will or she will start contributing to it. And none but Christ can transform a burglar into a benefactor. Put on the new clothes of work and generosity. John Wesley said, well, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and give as much as you can away. I will close with this picture of this actual transformation in a person who met Jesus. And I hope this resonates with all of us. We'll consider the other new articles of clothing next week in the final verses. But now in verse 28, still focusing, here's a great example of exactly how this works. There was a time when Jesus was ready to go on through to Jerusalem and he was passing through Jericho. And it says in Luke 19, there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Tax collectors got rich by extorting money over and above which was, that which was contracted. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He had no doubt heard of Christ. And he was no doubt feeling the pressures of his vocation and the social move against him. And he needed to know who this, he needed to meet Christ. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't see because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him because Christ was about to pass that way. 
This is a man who did not want to be seen by many people because if he was seen, it would be a perfect time for someone to, hey, there's Zacchaeus, the guy that robbed us. Let's get him. But he gets up into a tree, which is unbecoming to, a, to a, an established, polished, upstanding Jewish man. Yet he doesn't care. He wants to see Jesus. He needs to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. Jesus was showing Zacchaeus his acceptance of Zacchaeus. That's the most important acceptance. Not whether we accept Christ. It's whether he accepts us. And he only accepts us on, based on grace. He's going to come to Zacchaeus' house based on his sharing and showing grace to Zacchaeus. He doesn't say, I need you to go do this, this, and this so I can be a guest at your house, so I can have fellowship with you. He says, I'm going to be in your house today. And Zacchaeus gets what he's saying. He knows there's no way to make up for all the evil he's done. Yet Christ, knowing this, who knew his name, and he had not met him yet, from what we can tell, knew his, called him by name, Zacchaeus feels the sense of Christ's acceptance, his gracious acceptance. So he hurried and came down and received Christ joyfully. So he is renewed in Christ. We see this to be the case in Zacchaeus. And they sought, who is the they? The self-righteous religious leaders again. They who saw it all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Who's not a sinner? Zacchaeus knew it, admitted it, and he wanted to see Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to be your guest, and he received Jesus joyfully. And then Zacchaeus, after this has all happened, Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. Please save me. No, he knows he's saved. What he's doing is a result of his salvation. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. He is also a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. That's the, grace, that's the response to grace of putting off the old and putting on the new. And it could not be more clearly illustrated than in the story of Zacchaeus. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Lord, you have declared elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Father, we rejoice in what you have done for us through Christ. You have made us alive together with him. You have placed us in union with him as individual believers and as a church family. You have made us a new community, a church family, in union with each other now. Now, O oh Lord, help us to put on the new clothes that reflect who we are in Christ. We want to grow in you and be more united as a church. We want to grow in your grace. So we are asking for you to shower it upon us through Christ and by your spirit. Amen.